one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to a special edition of the Football Writers Podcast featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jordan Jarrett-Bryan of Channel 4 News, and Seb Stafford-Bloor of TIFO Football. Well, the Super League lasted as long as an ice lolly left out in the midday sun. The threat, of course, has not melted away. Ignore the script-written contrition, the fulsome apologies to fans they've already decided are irrelevant. Such club owners don't take no for an answer, but they are being confronted As we speak, Manchester United fans have invaded the training ground in protest at the Glazers. This story will run and run. Now, Jordan, a battle against greed and duplicity has certainly been won. But what are the war? Is that still likely to be lost? Yeah, I think it possibly it, it could be, but I think it depends on a few things. I approached this, Mike, having thought about this a lot over the last 48 hours in particular. I've, I've, I've approached this a bit differently to other people, having, having given some thought into what's really going on here. First of all, I think we need to establish what is the battle. What is it that I'm assuming we as football lovers want from this? What's, what's happened is a handful of very, very wealthy men have decided that this is a an opportunity for them to go from being billionaires to uber billionaires. But for me, a lot more than that. The word money has been has been has been mentioned as the rationale behind what these men want. And of course that that drives it. But I think it's something a little bit more. I think it's about power. And there's a difference between power and money. As I think we saw with Seth Blatter a few years ago, who used to run FIFA. <clears throat> The thing that I think a lot of people didn't understand was that the corruption that we that 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 he was involved in, for me, it, it wasn't about him wanting more money in his pocket. It was him trying to create a system where he was in power that then brought the money later on. If he could keep certain federations happy, he would stay in power for longer. I think it's a similar thing here. I think it's about these men wanting power over football in on this continent. And the money will then follow, no doubt. I, I am not actually opposed, Mike, to a Super League, a full disclosure. I'm not actually anti-Super League. What I'm anti is the way it was constructed and the rationale behind what they wanted, which was, again, control and power of two handfuls of European clubs that decided 
who got to play at the top table and they could not be eliminated from that. That's what I was anti. I'm not anti a restructuring of European football at all. It was the way they did it. And I think what I would also say before I, I, I defer to Seb is, I think we as football fans have to look at ourselves as well. I think we've slept walked into this. This is this shouldn't be a massive surprise. This should not be a huge surprise. We have slept walked into this for many, many years. If you're going to have the Paul Pogba's, the Aubameyang's, the, the Sergio Aguero's, these multi-million pound players coming to our league, the Mourinho's, the Guardiola's, the Klopp's that cost money, that was always going to come at a cost. And we wasn't complaining when we had the best managers and players in the world here. So then we have to then accept that they then, they being the owners of these clubs, they want something in return. And, and, and this was it. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a harsh logic to what you, what you say there, Jordan. But I would always argue that if there is any restructure, and let's face it, these people will definitely come again. It's in their very nature. We have to ensure that the spirit of the game, however difficult that is to enforce, it must be sustained. And that spirit is sustained by sustaining a pyramid and there has to be a principle that the rich support the weak or the poorer. You know and I know that those people who came up with the Super League plan won't even care about that. It's a very one-way process. Given that said, now, plotters don't tend to be excused, do they? You know, Guy Fawkes wasn't given the freedom in London. Should these owners and their clubs be punished? Yeah, well, I've, I've watched Game of Thrones, and uh, when you rebel, <laughs> there tends to be one ending. I think you have to, Mike. I think the greater cost, so it's certainly within the kind of the internal structures of the game, the great cost of this has been a huge breach of trust and an inability are for a lot of the clubs involved to exist side by side with domestic rivals. So if you think about that in a Premier League context, think about what it would be like for a club like Everton, who are building a new stadium, or a club like Burnley, who have just been taken over on the premise of Premier League revenue over the next sort of you know foreseeable future and you put them in a room with people that for the last 18 months have been quietly behind their back plotting an exit strategy which would be hugely cataclysmically detrimental to their future how can you have a productive relationship and so i think my argument would be that and i'm not saying that it has to be exclusively this but i think in terms of retribution you have to start with the people punishing the clubs is fine if you want to but I think, you know, your real success or a real progress or kind of learning, you know, what, what would be, uh, what would amount to learning a real lesson for this is to target the people that have been in these smoke-filled rooms and who have led this discussion and what some other people have um, quite correctly described as a coup. If you leave these people in the same room, do we really think, as you and Jordan have just said, do we really think that... This isn't just going to start up again within months. I mean, within 24 hours of the Super League collapsing, Andrea Agnelli is talking about refining the, the structure. Florentino Perez was, was among many other curious things he said on Spanish television, <laughs> was saying much the same last night. How can you be so naive as to allow plotters just to, I don't know, uh, head back to their castle and then mobilise against you in 18 months' time? You've got to be crazy if you let these people remain in executive control of these football clubs. 
Yeah, as quaint as it may seem, there is actually a charge called bringing the game into disrepute. <laughs> which uh, They used to cover everything in the old days, didn't yeah, they? Everything yeah. was, was there. <laughs> I suppose, you know, again, Jordan, am I being overtly romantic when I say, look, this is the chance to reset the game, to reestablish principles, to reaffirm values, or will money and self-interest just reassert its influence yet again? Well, I think it's a question, Mike, that I think everybody during this pandemic and this lockdown can ask in all areas of life. I think correct. that the Absolutely pandemic correct. has offered a chance for us to, the word I use, recalibrate, really work out in business, in sport, in life. I think the last year has given us an opportunity to just stop for a second and work out. Because I've got this theory, and stick with me for a second, but it's really weird theory. I'm not religious or anything like that. But I've got this theory that whoever the, whoever controls the world, whether you believe in a God or whatever it may be. Bill Gates. Whoever it may be, <laughs> looked down on planet Earth and just saw the greed, the racism, the sexual abuse, the, 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 the corruption, the nastiness, the social media, all the horrible things that are happening in the world and thought, you know what? I'm going to stop the world for a year. I'm going to put. I'm going to. I'm going to stop the world for a year. Everyone's going to go home. You can't come out for a year. There's going to be a pandemic. You've got a year to look at yourselves and come back in a year and really think about the persons and the people you want to be. And I think bringing it back to football, we've been presented with a chance to reset, as you put it, and really think about. What is football to us? What is the point of it? And how do we ensure that everybody can win from this? And I'm, I'm, I think we can reset. However, the only way we're going to reset this is if we're prepared to go to the lengths that I'm not sure we are. So I think, and ask you a question, yes, I think we can reset and use this time to reset. But I think we have to be prepared to be very extreme with our thinking. Okay, well, I suppose that uh, gives me an open goal for a quick plug, which I wrote, and and it is relevant, honestly, that that I wrote my book, Whose Game Is It Anyway?, in that period of self-reflection. And I'd fallen out of love with football, but I found a lot of things to fall back in love with the game. Good people doing great things in bad situations. I'm thinking about player welfare, people at clubs like Accrington Stanley, the the new generation of Phoenix clubs, Lewis FC, people like that who have a social conscience. I suppose, Seb, the question is, what needs to happen in practical terms for those sort of ventures, those sort of ideas and ideals to actually take hold again? Is there, for instance a political momentum for some form of fan ownership, do you feel? You're, you're living in Germany now mm-hmm. with the 51% model. How relevant do you think that could be at the highest level of English football? It's difficult, Mike. Sometimes I feel as if 50 plus one creates a perception of kind of footballing paradise. I'd caution against that by saying there are lots of, there, there's, there's a lot of good associated with that model, but it is still dependent on the quality of the individuals involved in the process. You know, German football, you know, at the most visible level, Bayern Munich's very high-performing club in a lot of ways. A lot of dysfunction in German football too. Schalke, Hamburg, Stuttgart, these clubs. And they're not necessarily adverts for the 50 plus one model. Also, Bayern's dominance of the domestic game. Also, it's a, you know, it's, it's potentially a gatekeeping issue. You know, you, it's a very good way of hiving clubs off at the top and allowing them to kind of exist in their status quo. I think 
referring that to English football, my concern would be, I have no problem with the model and I have no problem with the idea of it. Do we have the competence in government to actually enact that? I would say, and I'm not trying to make a political point. I don't even live in the UK anymore. So spare me the uh, social media, whatever about it. I don't believe in it. I don't believe uh, in the competence to the idea of, of this government reigning in some of the people associated with football at its highest level in England is is almost comical. So I don't have a lot of faith in that. I hate to be so negative, but it's just how I feel. It's a genie out of the bottle situation, horse bolting, and is, you know, half a mile down the track already. I, I don't know what the answer is. I think Jordan, Jordan started his podcast making a really, really good point. We've been sleeping on this for a very, very long time. So that this has proven to be the wake up call when the entire fabric of football was about to be ripped apart and restitched. I think it's a bit too late to 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 go back that far. And, yeah, and I, to- I totally agree. Sorry, Mike, just really no, no. says point there about the government who, who this week were talking hard talk and tough talk about we'll do everything that we can to ensure that this doesn't happen and we're going to set up this fan review. The government have been massively let off the hook here because yeah. they were able to talk tough on Monday and Tuesday about saving English football. And by the clubs having the reversal, they haven't had they haven't actually had to show any teeth or do anything. So they've they've really they've got to show they've got to seem tough without doing anything. And my question when Boris Johnson and Oliver Dowden, the coach secretary, were talking about doing whatever it took to stop these clubs leaving was, well, how? How can you tell Arsenal they can't yeah. leave the, the the Premier League? You what can you? It's, it's a romantic idea that you can save English football, and that's great, and it plays well to a country that love football. But in practical terms, how are you going to stop Manchester United, Liverpool? How, how are you going to do that? So I I, I think that, that this review, this fan led review thing. I think it's a, it's a massive uh, party play to try and appease the majority of the country. Well, I think we'll guys, let's not forget also, this is the same government that a year ago was using football as a scapegoat. Uh, Matt Hancock sort of challenging football to quote unquote do their bit, which obviously football stepped up and you know did more than their bit. People like Marcus Rashford, of course. So let's not... Um, in, until until we're proven wrong, let's not take this promises of root and branch reviews and inquiries to be anything other than just more government noise. So, yeah, uh, you know, wherever you look, myths abound, don't they? Each founding club or so-called, I, you know, I hated that phrase as though they were something so self-important. But each founding club of the of the Super League lost lost their eight million pound bond which does suggest that fools and their money are easily parted. I suppose when I talk about myths, Jordan, have we seen through the myth of the so-called elite in in European or world football? Well, w- there's always a certain sense of reverence towards these biggest clubs that, you know, they, they deserve to exert their power and... You know, when you look at the people who who came up with that Super League plan, the PR was shambolic, the marketing was laughable, and the way everything was presented was almost a, a you know the fulfilment of a, a self you know self fulfilling prophecy. Why do we take these people so seriously? It's it's a fair question. You think that individuals and corporations that are worth billions upon billions would have been able to put together something a little bit more. Um, a my bit more. my lo- my local <laughs> set a scout 
club could have come up with a with a better idea than this. It's a nonsense. It's, it's been it's been embarrassing, and I think us as us as journalists and as football fans looking at this, I think that you, you would think there's something to be fearful of. These multi-billion corporations slash men controlling our game. You know, if they say what's going to happen, it's going to happen. But I think we have seen through the the, the myth of these very powerful and 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 rich corporations to understand that actually you're a bit of a mess you know it's 48 hours i mean i heard a really good quote on the radio yesterday about if you're going to get into a fight at least have the fight <laughs> you might lose the fight but at least have the fight let's even have the fight um I, I found that really funny as well so yeah so maybe we've seen actually we, we don't need to be as fearful of these of these super clubs and of these super rich men as as maybe they would have liked us to have been but what about the status quo you know, and I'm not talking about people in double denim here. When you think about it, UEFA, Alexander Seferin had a good war. Let's let's be honest and upfront about that. I thought his press conference was extraordinary when he was talking about liars and snakes, and it was deeply, deeply personal and hugely entertaining. But, and there is a big but here, that since the collapse... He's been talking about unity and his great friends at Manchester City and other clubs involved. Under the cover of, of the artillery barrage earlier in the week, UEFA forced through their bloated Swiss model of the Champions League with 36 teams in group stages. No cogent plan for the future can exist alongside that new Champions League, in my view, at least. Seb, what is the least that we can demand from UEFA to prove that they've got the common good in mind? In other words, you know, things like those four wild card entries, should they be revoked? Otherwise, what we've got is a Super League or the principles of the Super League being applied in a competition that this time UEFA are going to benefit from. Yeah, the the wild cards the, those two spots guaranteed to the teams with the highest coefficients who have finished just outside the Champions League places they would have to go I think you're right in that Alexander Seferin has been politically very good he's sounded very statesmanlike he's bitten down on quite a few very personal feelings I mean he, he is the godfather to Andrea Agnelli's daughter so that is a very strange dynamic and something which would be very very difficult to um, deal with in public there has to be a retaliation and there has to be a renegotiation of that new Champions League model because that in itself was an act of appeasement and appeasement is no longer really necessary here because those clubs are as weak as they have ever been politically. They're in no position to negotiate. They are in obviously no position to posture about Super Leagues, at least not for a, a, a few years, you'd think. We, we started this pod by talking about what's essential to the game and that's this idea of aspiration and pyramids and the ability for a club no matter how unlikely to go from bottom to top and I I think that's something that has to be reflected in this Champions League model and I, I also think that um, the idea that we could have a situation whereby potentially a, a team who finishes sixth in England could have a Champions League spot ahead of a, a team who have won the Eredivisie or the Turkish League I, I think that's a nonsense I think that has to go I think that that promotes this idea of elitism which we've just rejected as fans we, we have rejected the idea that you should be able to seal yourself off at the top of the game and detach sporting performance from revenue. And I understand why the Champions League model is how it is at the moment. That's fine because 
It was an effort on UEFA's part to prevent what happened on Sunday night from happening. But now, three days later, you have to revisit this because, again, if you normalize the idea of rewarding teams who have underperformed, you create a precedent which, as and when the Champions League structure is, is renegotiated again, when it's remodeled, it will get worse because it'll be a few years down the line. We'll all have stopped being angry about what happened and we'll all be just as naive as we were at, on Sunday lunchtime. And so it's very, very important to take action now. Mm. There's so many agendas, aren't there, Jordan? You know, I, I've been waiting for the Celtic and Rangers line to come in. And hey, presto, it, was, it turned up in the sun this morning. A, a new British Super League in the works with Rangers and Celtic reform, in a reformed 18-team Premier League. I don't think that will happen now, certainly if the, the other six are still in the fold. But... Isn't that the issue? Football's always got myriad agendas. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, the, the whole Celtic Rangers thing. I, I, I don't. I'm very ambivalent about that, to be honest. And I, I always kind of have been. I, I'm not necessarily for it, but I wouldn't be upset if they did join the league. So I've never been really kind of exercised too much about the whole Rangers Celtic joining the Premier League debate. But there are there are always agendas. I think everybody's looking looking out, and everybody being the clubs is looking out for what's best for them, the broadcasters. I mean, I appreciate this is a BT Sport podcast, but mm. the broadcasters, I think, are looking out for their interests as well. And that's fine. This is a business. Why Why wouldn't they? Why shouldn't they? But I think we're definitely seeing whose interests are what and, and the whys. And I think people like ourselves, we just care about watching good football. And I think more importantly, what's come out of the Super League thing, fair football, competitive football. Whereas I think the big wigs, they have agendas that are beyond beyond that. They, they, they're they interested in, in, in power and money. So I think agendas are always going to be a thing. I think they've just been exposed over this last this last three or four days. Yeah. And I suppose to be fair, we know we need to acknowledge that we're, we're paid observers of the game as well. So, you know, it... it What's good for the goose, good for the gander, and all that. But I suppose looking at the at the biggest picture in in it's only in English terms, Seb. What's come across is that those you know certainly so called sort of dirty half dozen, they all had pretty different motivations. When you think about it, Spurs and Arsenal were basically grateful travellers. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, you see, I know I know I'm talking to one guy who supports Arsenal and the other guy supports Tottenham, so I can be equally <laughs> abusive, okay? You've got obviously Manchester United and Liverpool are, who are just basically quietly desperate ringleaders of the whole thing, and probably Manchester City and Chelsea are independently wealthy. Liverpool. How can FSG be forgiven? I don't think there should be, Mike. I think also, if you look at, if you take the footballing success out of the equation, take the Champions League win and the Premier League victory, and you look at some of FSG's handling of the club and the, you know, the history and the legacy of what Liverpool's supposed to mean, I think it's been terribly clumsy. And I think we've had this moment has been signposted to for quite a long time, whether it's kind of described as xenophobia or not. Whenever you get American owners in European sport, this fear exists and it exists for good reason because, and it's fair to, to level the accusation at owners like FSG because as soon as the opportunity presented itself, they wanted to be part of a remodeling of European football, which essentially franchised the top of the game. And that is the American model whereby there is no relegation, there is no jeopardy, there is just a huge broadcasting payment and sponsorship agreements every single year. So the charge is very fair now. So I don't think you can. I also don't think um, 
I, I watched John Henry's groveling apology, also noted he didn't take off his jacket before he gave it. And <laughs> you just think, well, this is what you said about furlough a year ago. We hear you, we misunderstood. You don't misunderstand. You just didn't pay enough attention to what it is that you own. You don't, you, 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 you're surprised by the reaction of supporters because you don't bother to find out what they think before you make these decisions. And it's, it's so insulting. I'm not a Liverpool fan, but you hear this from other clubs too. It's so insulting how stupid they think we are. It's incredible peddling these lines about we've listened, we listen. You didn't listen. You just, you, you got faced by, you, 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 you got presented with an untenable situation which you had no opportunity to, but to humiliatingly climb down from and then give your kind of your, you know, pay lip service to all the things that people want to hear the morning afterwards. You can't forgive that. You can't forgive that. And so as a result, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's probably a question for a Liverpool fan because it's a deeply personal situation, but I, I wouldn't be able to do it myself. Yeah, if you are a Liverpool fan, you put yourself in that position, Seb, if you could. As you said, that video message was an absolute collector's item, wasn't it? Yeah. It was. The, there was so much faux empathy. The tone of the voice was wrong. It was obviously script-written. Liverpool has an emotionally committed fan base. They'll throw, they'll see through that, won't they? Well, uh, you'd hope so. I mean, I think the problem you have, Mike, is that whenever these issues present itself, after a certain number of days, tribalism kind of kicks in. And so you get this situation where fans start saying things like, yeah, but my club's less rubbish than yours and you know you're more insincere than we are and you know your ownership is more heartless than ours and and you just you you kind of you kind of play this game of sort of willful denial for the sake of protecting your own loyalties and i have no doubt that will happen and the thing is i don't blame fans for that because it you just never sign up for this situation like you know you fall in love with the game because of what the game is and because of what it means to go to matches every week and you know how it feels when your team scores a goal and how it feels when they don't and and you know how it can ruin your week or you make your week you don't sign up for making these incredibly morally difficult decisions about you know how much am i allowed to care on the basis that you know are the, my club's owners couldn't possibly care less about me unless i pay you know i'm 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 paying for ticket prices or replica shirts through the teeth you know it's 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 Fans are not designed to be in that situation, so you can't really hold them accountable. Mm. As, as, as you know, as I mentioned, Jordan, Liverpool is a, an emotionally driven club. It was very marked that the way the story evolved, it got to a point. I think Everton's statement was very, very powerful, and then there was a a, a move for people to be seen to be on the right side of history because players especially will be remembered for how they reacted during all this and Milner came across really well Patrick Bamford came across really well it was no surprise when Jordan Henderson essentially corralled the Liverpool squad together given that the power of that example and unanimity of purpose of those players how will that affect the internal dynamics at the club and do you think what's gone on in the last 72 hours will actually also impact Jurgen Klopp's relationship with Liverpool? Well, I think just firstly and briefly, I think Liverpool, uh, you know, have come out of this of the six clubs, I would say the worst. 
And the reason why I think they've come up with the worst is because they are the club that very, very publicly brand themselves as the people's club. They're very, very, very open about that. You know, I know there's, they get a lot of heat for the whole this means more, more strap, which they they themselves, you know, they, they run with that, so it's fine. We hear about the famous European nights under the lights. There's nowhere like Anfield and, you know, they're the 12th man. And that's that's all well and fine. But then when this sort of thing happens, you look really bad because, as, as Seb has said, actually, how in touch are the club with the with, with, with the people? And they really, they're just mugging off the people, really, because it's like, well, this doesn't mean more. <laughs> You're just basically out in this to make money like everybody else. So I think of all the six clubs, they look the worst out, out of all of them. In terms of the internal dynamics and relationships between the players and managers and the ownership, I'm not sure. I, I'm actually, again, in agreement with Seb that my fear, and it has been for a while, generally in football, definitely in my club, Arsenal, is that people have short memories. And my mm. fear is that in a few weeks' time, Liverpool, all the talk is going is to turn to Liverpool's fight to get back into the top four. Will Salah stay at Liverpool or move on to, I don't know, Real Madrid? And then the Euros, remember the Euros is only, what, 50 days away? My concern is that this is going to be as big as as big as it was this week, this time next month, there'll be a bigger story. Jose will be linked to Arsenal, and that will be the thing we're talking about. Do you know what I mean? And that will just, I mean... A, a, um, a, please, a, God, a, no. Please, no. Trust me, I'm an Arsenal fan. I, I want nothing. <laughs> he, he's, he's a born winner, Jordan. Oh, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Um, but my, my point is, is that I'm not so sure this will have the repercussions that I think we think it will have. For someone like Jurgen Klopp, who we, who we, we believe and what we see is a very principled man, I think the biggest the biggest faux pas the club have made is not trying to make this happen. It's trying to make this happen without talking to him about it. I think he'll feel massively betrayed that I, not only am I not in agreement with the, us going to the Super League, you were going to try and do it without me even knowing. I think mm. that is what, as a point of principle, might really be the defining point of whether he stays or not. Because I think if he doesn't feel he can trust those owners, he, his whole thing is, I trust my players, I trust my fan base, I've got to trust my ownership, they back me. The minute he feels like he's not, that he can't trust the people that employ him, what might be the moment that he thinks, I, I, I can't be here anymore. So I'm not sure widely how much of an impact this will have in terms of repercussions. I, I do think people generally just move on very quickly and forget, and that's dangerous. But in terms of it, internally at Liverpool, I, I think Klopp's biggest issue may be not only did you not listen to me when I said, was it a, a couple of years ago, I wasn't for this, you then still tried to do it without even talking to me yeah. about it. You know what's really interesting yeah. about that, Jordan? Two very, very good jobs in Germany going this summer as well. National team job, Bayern Munich job. Interesting, it's something to keep an eye on, I think. Mm, yeah, and also, I don't think, you know, I take your point, Jordan, about Liverpool coming out of it really badly, or, or certainly the Liverpool owners. Manchester United... I think you're alongside them in that because it's probably not quite as much a surprise that they were so heavily involved in it. I don't think the fans will forgive and forget simply because they're in the position that they care more than most. And we see, as I said, right at the top of the, the show, you know, the, the, the fans are in the, in the training ground as we're recording this podcast. With Manchester United, Seb, would you say that the Glazers are the worst example of the exploitation of football? Yeah, of course they are. Because, and it's funny, Mike, because they almost get off easily as a result of that. Because they've 
they've established this situation where they don't comment publicly. They don't really engage with the club's culture in the way that FSG have at Liverpool, that you kind of expect the worst of them. If you think about what's more than 15 years of ownership now, you think about the rising debt levels at Manchester United. You think about the fact that Old Trafford is kind of rotting a little bit. It's rusting, you know, and, you know, it's not in good shape. And, you know, other clubs have, have kind of improved their infrastructure around the league. Manchester United... Manchester United don't and I, I I just think it's kind of it's it's opportunistic ownership and I felt like with them their involvement in the Super League feels like something that everybody knew would happen 15 years ago and so you, you you're almost not shocked about it and I, I feel bad for saying that because you you know the the response to all of these owners should actually be the same I don't think we should be dividing up into who's done the worst thing and it's kind of okay because Tottenham and Arsenal were, were um you know lucky to be involved and how could you blame them no no absolutely not this is my club and innocent I'm, said we got dragged into this Arsenal we have nothing to do with it we were coerced into this come on we were the little brother dragged along I I mean I just can't accept it like I I feel like with my fans hat on, and let's be honest, we are only here doing this because we we're all fans in the first instance. You don't go into football writing, football broadcasting, anything if you're not a fan in the first instance. And so that will always matter more. And I just can't accept what's happened. And I want repercussions for it. And I want resignations as a result of it. I don't want to hear anything about, oh, well, we had to take the opportunity, couldn't get left behind. No, it's a complete betrayal of everything that we, we grew up on. Yeah. Um, and, and also, the little brother who's being dragged along is fully tooled up. He's got, he's got flick knives in every potential pocket, okay? He's just spent a billion pounds on a stadium, Mike. Some little brother. I mean, this is, this is, a, this is a huge business. And this was a calculated decision. And I, 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 I don't really want to say anything, but I feel like I might swear on the podcast. It just, it's, I'm not done with it from a Tottenham perspective I I can detach the team and I can detach the players and I can detach Ryan Mason very well done by the way Ryan Mason I'm very very happy for you above that this isn't even close to being over emotionally for me well we'll we'll talk about the League Cup final probably quite briefly a bit later on so there'll be a bit of glory glory don't worry about it (laughs) Manchester, Manchester United. Uh, (laughs) I'm looking at Jordan's face now listeners it's not it's a picture um (laughs) Okay, Manchester United, Jordan. Edward Wood's departure. I think it's fair to say it's been largely unmourned. Do you understand why? Hmm. If it's from the perspective that he is the full guy from this, then yes, you know they're they're under a massive heat. And as you say, as we record this, the the, the fans are, are are batting down, bringing down the walls of of Old, of Old Trafford or Carrington. So, yes, I get that. If it's because it's 15 years or however long he's been in charge or been been there and his time overall is seen as a, as a failure, again, he may well feel I've been here long enough, had some good highs, but generally, you know, we've not been competitive or, or anywhere near where we should have been. But it, it, I, I, I need to know where it's come from. Is it him stepping away or, is, or has he been... Like I say, been thrown to the wolves, so to speak. You take this one to deflect away from because the timing was interesting. The timing was very interesting that it came before the statement that they were pulling out. So I, I'm not quite sure how I feel about his, his him leaving Manchester United. The difference, I guess, between Liverpool and United, and I started off by saying I think Liverpool come out of this worse of all the six clubs. At least the Liverpool fans, there's a smidging of, well, as bad as our owners are, 
they've delivered a European Cup and a Premier and a Premier League and a title race in the last three years. Whereas Man United fans would say, well, you haven't even given talking to the Glazers, you haven't even given us a proper title challenge. You haven't given us a European Cup. So I guess their their grievance would, would be more on the pitch. You just haven't delivered. So I, I'm not quite sure where I stand on the whole on the whole Ed Woodward thing. But what I do know is, as you said, the fan base are absolutely ecstatic. What I think is concerning is the names I'm hearing about the replacement. I'm hearing about I think Nicky Barr, Gary Neville. This no, this nostalgic idea that just because these guys are club legends, they can walk into that role. Ed Woodward might not have done a great job, and by the way, his job was to get commercial deals in, which he did. But he might have done a great job on the pitch, but it's a difficult job to do. And this idea that just because you speak well on television and you have some understanding of Manchester United, you could do that job as well, I think is very, very dangerous. Yeah, well, we're talking about the old chestnut of a director of football again, aren't we? And um, that's entirely different from the the sort of role that, that Woodward had within that management structure. Actually, stay with you if I could, Jordan. You're talking about fan bases. You were at Chelsea, reporting from Chelsea, when they marched on Stamford Bridge. Give us a flavour of what it was like to be there and how important, do you think, was the role of, of their fans in the whole gradual chipping away at the edifice of the Super League? So, first of all, the most surreal thing was that when I got there, they were singing some songs outside the ground. There were lots of them there, about 500. It was very, very loud. And um, they were singing songs with expletives towards the board. And then within an hour, there was people doing congas when the news was broken that they'd pull in, <laughs> pulled out. And in between that, they were throwing celery. I didn't get it. They were, they were, they were lobbing <laughs> celery at, at the ground. I was like, is this some joke that I'm not getting? I couldn't quite work out why they kept throwing bits of celery towards the stadium. Haven't they, anyway. they got a chant called celery? Oh, is that what it is? I, yeah, I, I think I so. Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I, I didn't get that. was so bizarre. Um, <laughs> and Petr Cech came out to try and get the bus to come through because they were blocking it, and it was all a bit weird. They, the, the, the narrative that was painted afterwards, and I, I fell into the trap, I must admit, during my broadcast. I was literally a two minutes before going live on air, before I got a text from our desk saying a statement's been prepared by Chelsea to withdraw from the, from the European Super League. I fell into the trap as well of making this about a fan power turning the ship around. And I, having thought about it more afterwards, I'm not so sure I do buy into this idea that the fans have caused this. And if the fans have caused it, it's a win for the fans because the way I see it now, Mike, is that all that's happened is a really, really crappier situation has been prevented from happening. The fan experience in football, especially Premier League football, is not a good one. What we pay, the way we're treated, it's, we're just, we've just gone back to that. It's just not got any worse. So I'm not necessarily sure this is a big win for the fan base. And the Chelsea fan base was singing and dancing around. But I heard a very good point, and let me be very clear. I don't agree with John Barnes on the majority of things, but he made a very good point that a lot of those Chelsea fans that were that were congering and dancing in the streets afterwards, how many of those guys can afford a season ticket to go to Chelsea next season? How many of those Chelsea fans can afford the subscriptions for, sorry to say again, but a BT Sport and a Sky Sports? Have the fans really won or they just prevented a very, very expensive and dangerous situation from getting even worse? So I, I'm not sure this narrative that the fans have done this and the fan powers controlled it 
actually is entirely accurate. But the Chelsea fans, they were happy after being very, very, you know, very upset. You know, there was more action. There was a game that night. There was more action outside Stamford Bridge than there was on on the pitch itself. But um, yeah, the, 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 the narrative was painted that Chelsea fans had saved football. I'm a bit like, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure that, that that is entirely true. Yeah, one of the many ludicrous things that uh, Florentino Perez came up with this week was that the accusation that there were only 40 people there and he knew he put, who he knew who put them there which um does stretch credulity quite you know quite dramatically really what i'm interested in also a little bit like the liverpool question seb the fallout the internal fallout at chelsea we all know that it's a club run created by roman abramovich now he's said to be furious with the chairman, Bruce Buck, who's been the great survivor there, hasn't he? Do you think their shift in attitude against the Super League was probably the most significant of all the plotters? Because the one thing that that league did go against was, remember a couple of weeks ago, there was that rare Roman Abramovich interview where he projected the club as, as a family, talked about helping former players and you know people were reading between the lines of that and thinking well why is he given his first interview for 15 years or whatever it was Chelsea need a bit of good PR but also internally what would the fallout be do you think I don't know without without really understanding what Chelsea's role has been in this to this point it's really difficult to say I mean I don't I don't want to kind of I don't want to implicate Bruce Buck and conversations which he hasn't been part of I don't know I mean I what I what I what I did notice was Chelsea were very keen to stress the timing of their withdrawal there's obviously been um some fairly favorable media coverage let's put it that way which have kind of presented them as the kind of the um in an innocent bystander which sure I I kind of understand but I don't think that um any company or any asset ever owned by Roman Abramovich has ever done anything against his will I just find that very very hard to believe I don't know. I mean, I, I, I have the same attitude towards them as I do to the other clubs. I think you have to start removing executives, whether by their own choice or whether by a kind of communal decision within the club, because I don't know how an organisation can have credibility around, for instance, a Premier League board meeting. If you sat all those people responsible for those clubs' affairs around the table today, how do you have a productive conversation about the, the, the league's future? Similarly, if you want to have a voice in, uh, for instance, the UEFA Executive Committee, how do you have somebody in those conversations who has essentially plotted the organization's downfall? So you have to do that for the kind of, yes, for PR reasons, clearly, but also for functionality reasons. If you want to be an active participant in your future, you have to agree to a little bit of bloodletting. Now, I don't know who the right person is at Chelsea to take responsibility for that, I can guess. It's a little bit clearer at other clubs. You don't get off the hook just because, you know, you've had some slightly charitable newspaper coverage or because you realise the gravity of mis- you managed to pull out of this, this whatever it was, this cabal that was taking over football six minutes before another Premier League club. It doesn't work like that. You did it. You were there. And it's, there's, no, there's, no, there's, no, there's no value in a conversation beyond that, I don't think, at this point. We're given to understand, Seb, that the Arsenal chief executive is calling up his equivalents at the other 14 Premier League clubs to apologise. 
How do you think the internal dynamics of the Premier League will be affected by this? Because we were already hearing or, or being given unattributable quotes from people saying that you know, they don't think they can work with these people again. Yeah, I mean, the Premier League has always come across as quite a fractious organisation in the sense of there's always been these sort of leaks and these unofficial comments. If you think back to Project Restart, I mean, not a meeting seemed to go past without somebody leaking a bit of information or, a, you know, some outlandish idea somebody had come up with. Um, and it's interesting, they, but they, they seem to get over it. For instance, I, you know, obviously, um, you know, Karen Brady had a little bit to say this week. And, you know, a year ago, she was calling for the, the league to be annulled as her West Ham were close to relegation. You know, the, the point being is that they get over it. Like, I think they have their natural rivalries and there has been a massive breach of trust. And personally, I think that, you know, a lot of those people shouldn't be allowed back in the same room. But it's always been a little bit like that. I don't think it's been a harmonious organisation in which everybody gets on. I mean, there are so many different agendas in that room that it could never be that way. And I I think that, um, I mean, I... To be honest with you, if, if this is the point at which those 14 clubs decide that they shouldn't be trusting the top six, okay, but that's incredibly naive. I'm not condoning it and saying that there shouldn't be repercussions. Of course there should be. But if if everybody, if these people have been unaware that there has been a separate agenda somewhere in the shadows, then, well, read a newspaper. I mean, because we've been aware of it for 18 months, despite what anybody says, despite the denials. So I don't know. I mean, if they've, they've been... If they've been um, if they've had full faith in in those six executives, if they've believed every word they said, if they they all think that they've been um, working with the same hymn sheet, then well, I don't know. I'm not not quite sure what to tell you, Mike. Mm. And just you know, with your Arsenal hat on, Jordan, all this is unlikely to worry Stan Kroenke, isn't it? Because he moves franchises around as if they're chess pieces. Definitely, yeah. I mean, I said earlier on that I thought that the Liverpool as a club came out of this, of the six, the worst. I think, though, that the Arsenal, I think for Arsenal, they have the most stubborn of all of all owners. And of all the six owners, they're the least, I think, likely to have theirs changed anytime soon. I think there's still a protest planned for Friday ahead of the Everton game, I believe. Everton, yeah. At the, the Emirates. Um, I mean, that was planned on Monday before the U-turns. But I think that now the, U- the, the, the protest will morph from, a bit like Tottenham, from anti-European Super League to get out of our club. And I think Arsenal are the best example of what I said earlier on about fans forgetting what will happen is we'll get thrown an 80 million pound winger or striker in the summer and we'll think that that's our way of getting into the top four next season. Or even worse, we may win the Europa League this season and that will distract from the bigger issues of actually the ownership of our club is in a really, really bad place. Despite a few wins, I mean, unlike Seb, we have a few small wins over the last few years that kind of distract us. That wasn't a shot, by the way. <laughs> kind of was. Um, but over the last 10, 15 years, a few FA Cups, a few fancy signings distract from what's been largely, for a so-called big club, a really, really underachieving period. So my, my fear is that he, he is a bit like Teflon, and he won't. He will quickly move on to 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 you know to some to something else while still taking this club uh, through the mire. But I think the Arsenal fan base have to really now show some some courage if they want to force this guy out of the club because it's it's what 15 years since won a Premier League. It's re- that's embarrassing. It's really really bad. So I, I, I think that Arsenal 
of all the owners have the one that is least likely to to move on. And just briefly as well, you mentioned at the top there, Mike, that you went for a period of falling out of love with football. I, I, I totally agree. The last few years, for many reasons, not just because my club is a bit of a mess, but I've actually fallen out of love with football to a degree as well because it, 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 there's so many things with VAR, some of the rule changes, the lack of fans. Okay, they'll return soon. But all of these things and this on top of it, it just made me think, what are we watching? What, what, what are we investing our time in? What The thing that we used to love, what are we really loving anymore? And it's, it's been soured for sure. And I think as an Arsenal fan, it's very difficult for me to get excited, excited about my football club anymore. Mm. What about Tottenham, Seb? Your club? I, I struggle to remember a more Spursy week than the last week that you've had. And <laughs> Because when you think about it, you've lost your manager... Uh, you've uh, alienated your fan base beyond redemption. You've lost your remaining shreds of credibility. How will all this play into Sunday's League Cup final? And will we see banners of um, Daniel Levy, football genius? I don't think so. Uh, there were some small protests outside White Hot Lane last night. A few people protesting Enix ownership. I think it's quite a strange situation because in Ryan Mason... They have an interim manager who is extremely popular with the fan base, not just because he was at the club as a young as a young player and had a you know I think his association goes back sort of almost twenty two twenty three years I think he's been there since he was about nine years old, but he's very restorative. I mean, you if you think about what happens after Jose Mourinho, kind of the release of pressure and the kind of the the um, venting out of all the agendas and the tension. There's a in this situation you have someone who is able, it's not by design, but it's someone who is able to kind of seal off the team from everything that's happening above. No matter what happens on Sunday, the same opposition will exist to Daniel Levy on Monday morning. And I I expect Tottenham to lose that game. I I don't think it's realistic to expect anything else with or without Kevin De Bruyne lining up against them. But I I think for Tottenham fans, it's 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 a very important step because if you ask a lot of people how they felt about the League Cup until Monday morning when Jose Mourinho departed... It might have been a kind of, well, I hope we win, but I'm worried about what winning might condemn us to because it would have been a kind of a, been an endorsement of everything that had happened this season or it would have been used against them. We've won a League Cup, what else do you want? That kind of argument. Whereas now as a result of, of Mourinho's departure, it's become much more of a pure, well, we'll probably lose and that will probably ruin my week and be absolutely devastating. But at least it feels right again. At least the balance is right and there isn't anything quite as conflicting. But it, it won't, it shouldn't change anything that's happened because it's to confuse, it's to confuse where these decisions get made. Right. And it's to confuse also what football players and football coaches are today in the game, with the exception of your, you know, Mourinho's and your Guardiola's, even your Guardiola's actually. They are pawns. They are moved around a chessboard by people that are unimaginably wealthy and powerful. And football as it happens on the pitch, as we've seen this week, the great energy in the game is to stop the things that happen on the pitch from actually mattering. So you, you can't therefore go back to something like a League Cup final and see that as a bomb for any of the actions that the club has taken over the last few days. I actually think, uh, sorry, just briefly as, as for Spurs, it was actually a good, it was a good day because when you think about it, they got the manager out they wanted, at the one, that they wanted out. On the same day, they actually got to exit a league that they would have been the whipping boys in anyway. So in some senses, actually, it was a positive day for Spurs because it was two bits of good news, depending on, I suppose, how you how you flip it. Ars- Ars- yeah. Arsenal definitely finishing bottom of that Super League, Jordan, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> hey, hey. 
Go on, boys, get a room. Okay. Uh, what about let's let's? I know this is, a, this is a, a bit of a novel idea, but let's talk about the football for just a couple of seconds, anyway. Um, <laughs> Manchester City, eight points from the title after seeing off, well, rousing themselves to see off Villa last night. Phil Foden again. Tottenham might be able to get Harry Kane out of his bath chair and onto the pitch. You've got to look at this as an as a pretty much a a pretty nailed on city win but does it feel like an afterthought of course of course like it, it it can't be anything else you you know the idea that um i mean first of all you're 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 confronting a cup final where i mean okay there are, there are going to be some fans in there but a few friends that have managed to get tickets which is wonderful news but it's still an empty wembley uh, like a you know a, a quarter full wembley is almost worse than a completely empty wembley so there's not, there's not going to be any kind of cup final uh feel or aesthetic to it and also i mean a, a lot of us i suppose the disillusion of the super league makes it gives it a value in terms of european qualification and it is a trophy that actually matters and you know is is not part of a uh, record book which is about to be torn up but it's it's very difficult to get yourself into the mindset of a, a cup final day when a week has begun as it has done because it's it makes it look so small in comparison. It's very, very difficult to... Um, I, I think by the time the game kicks off, I'll probably be there because I'll probably be able to muster enough willful denial to pretend that nothing has happened. I mean, I'll go back to resenting it all on Monday morning, don't get me wrong, but um, it's it's tricky. I, I, I don't really know how to respond. I mean, the whole point of this stuff, Mike, is it's unprecedented. Mm. I, I think City win this game. I'm not as sure as I was pre-Kevin De Bruyne injury, but it does have a little bit of a, an air of the Champions League final with Harry Kane going into this game not completely fully fit. And mm. I don't know if that's if you know if if lessons can be learned from the fact that he's your best player and your best goal threat. But if you're 70% fit, are you better off playing an inferior player? who's 100% fit and can run. Because one thing you know you've got to do against Manchester City is is, is run. So I, I, I think it will be a City win. I don't think I'm as, as sure as I was pre-Kevin De Bruyne, but I think um, it is a bit of an afterthought. And, it, you know, if Spurs were to win it, it could cap off a really, really good week for Spurs. But I, <laughs> but I, I think the theme of what I'm talking about is distractions. Spurs mustn't let the, the League Cup be a distraction for the bigger picture of, you know, like Arsenal, my club, they're a mess. They're in a, they're in a bad way at the moment. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll probably end by by looking at the biggest picture possible, you know, the game as a whole. Here's another quote for you. This is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Now, I know it's ridiculous, to link one of Winston Churchill's great wartime speeches with something as ultimately insubstantial as football. But bear with me here. As I said at the start, an important battle has been won. The war, far from over. We need to remind ourselves on a regular basis that the men behind this Super League idea don't care for the game and they don't care for you. All they believe in is their right, ha-ha, for more money, and as Jordan said earlier, more power. They must be for and must never be forgiven. What do you think? Please tell me. In the meantime, thanks to Jordan and Seb for their insight and their nice little squabble. Uh, 
and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.